Welcome, everyone, throughout time and space for this new episode of Weebs on the Weekends, the podcast where we break down the anime news highlights of the week and give a retrospective look on an anime that premiered 10 years ago. Today's episode, we will cover the fourth week of August 2022, after which we will give our thoughts on to whether to resurrect or rebury the 2012 anime film Berserk, the Golden Age Arc 2, The Battle for Doltry. My name is Sam Martinez, I'm a part-time weeb, full-time automail mechanic, and with me as always is my co-host, Jay Johnson, part-time weeb, full-time English language sensei. Now, Jay, <laughs> I remember telling you prior to this uh, recording, this week has been fairly hard and I have not been able to be the weeb that I have been. And I know that we wanted to sort of go over a little bit of uh, this uh, current anime season. I just want to say, apologize to you and to our loose listeners that I have not been the best weeb that I had could have been uh, recently. So please forgive me if <laughs> my uh, answers and my responses are not where uh, they usually are. Um, when talking in regards to current um, uh, anime uh, franchises. Uh, because, as I've mentioned before, I've been filling up my time with Sandman and uh, highly anime-influenced stuff like uh, the TMNT. I finally uh, finished uh, that franchise, and it was quite the wild and pretty ride. And as an old TMNT fan, I'm kind of glad that I gave it a shot and didn't uh, completely disregard it. But yeah, just just wanted to preface that before <laughs> we go into a little, little bit of the talks that you wanted to go into, because I know that uh, my responses would be uh, not less than desirable, but not where it should be, you know? Gotcha. No problem. Yeah, I mean, of course, because, you know, we let it lay out about five anime that we both want to watch or put on our list. Sometimes we exchange and, like, pick other pick each other's interests because, you know, some anime that you picked I wouldn't even consider and some I picked that, like, this season for this summer, we only had, what, do we have zero in common, I believe? Because, like, Made in Abyss season two started and I was already excited for that, but you're new to Made in mm -hmm. Abyss so that you put that on your list. But yeah, there was some anime that completely went over my head because it's like, oh, okay. No, as you said, uh, looking back at the list, our uh, animes were completely different. So yeah, no, you you were right in saying that. Gotcha, yeah. Because like, if you look at the seasonal anime, there was like plenty to you know catch your interest about the premise and even when the promotional videos dropped. But the thing that really sidetracked me, so not that I wasn't very vigilant with my anime watching for the season, but... There were so many horny on main anime this season, <laughs> I could not help myself. So I just wanted to like pull notice to these because one, they're everywhere. They're getting so much, you know, publicity. They're getting so much news coverage. But the four anime that really caught my attention. So the anime that I really kept on my list that I watched for the whole season. So this is like yeah. the eighth season of a Japanese broadcast is the Yakuza guideline for babysitting, which is mm -hmm. so adorable. It's just like wholesome for the heart. It's just like eating good soup uh, for the soul. It's just soup for the soul. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it might make my best 10 of the year or, you know, top 10 of the year already for just these okay. first eight episodes. But the four anime that really sidetracked me this season were was Engage Kiss. Was that on your list? No, it wasn't. But I think I've seen something about that, like floating around. Yeah. So basically, it's just a supernatural power fantasy story. But the gimmick is that 
the main male character has to kiss a girl, uh, or actually he just makes out with her yeah. um, during like battle scenes, and it's like really graphic. Like it's like like swapping saliva kind of graphic for kissing oh, scenes that you yeah. don't really expect from a shonen title like this. But the catch is every time he does this, he exchanges his memories. He loses his memories to help the girl power up really? and like become a weapon. So it's like. Yeah, this sexually charged kiss. He loses his memories and she gains power. So it's really weird. <laughs> Show the title. That, that, that's that's a, that's a weird trade off. Some people may say that's worth it. Some people may say it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So most of the times he just he identifies the memories that he doesn't have any use for. But the story is kind of unraveling, like what happens to a person when they delete a certain memory, like what chain yeah. reaction that has. So that's kind of what's carrying the story for me right now. The other okay. one was My Stepsister is My Ex, which I talked about. Yes, you um, did. In that episode. I think that was the Koroko Connect episode where we talked about our summer anime. But yeah, yeah man, went in a direction I was not expecting. But uh, the next one were Vermint and Gold, which is about a high school student going to a magical academy and he summons a succubus demon. And bruh, with this latest episode, she mm-hmm. does the okay symbol in front of her mouth, which is like a very known pornographic in the um, Japanese community kind of known gesture for, you know, oral sex. And I'm like, this is a kid's show. Come on. Like, <laughs> you're getting just really emboldened with like how much. You got to start them off it. young. You got to show off young so they can know the cues. <laughs> Apparently. And that's what's amazing about looking at current anime. You're like, what is the industry thinking? And the last one was just Harem in the Labyrinth of Another World, which I think I talked about as well. And like the premise you would think like Harem in a Labyrinth in Another World is kind of like Don Machi, but it's not. The main character is like, hey, I'm going to become an adventurer and buy girls so they can be in my harem. That's the premise, and that's wow. what the so he's just and, going around like buying people. That, um, how how is that okay in today's time? Right, especially after Sword, uh, not Sword Hero, but Shield Hero kind of twisted that. Like he bought Raftalia, but you know, trained her up to be a warrior and like have yeah. her own independence. And, yeah, and like, like the thing is, like, as as you said, like with uh shield hero like they make it a point is like buying people is not okay and he was just making the best out of a bad situation but it's like they're just like completely condoning it's like yeah you, you can buy people it's nothing it doesn't mean nothing it's like, right, yeah. Yeah. so it's like skirting this very fine line of like yeah. oh, he's a good person so it's fine if he has slaves kind of <laughs> logic to it but it's just really incredible that how horny this season of anime turned out for me but other than that, non-animated things was um, I'm, I watched the first episode of Sandman, and then I also watched what else did I watch? I watched something I'm forgetting about. But Sam, how about you? It's it's just funny that you mentioned Horny on Main because uh, the shows that one of the shows that I, that I had for um, my um, uh, hopeful uh, earlier in the season, one of the shows that I had mentioned was Bastard. And oh my goodness, when you mentioned Horny on Main, I'm like, yes, this is what it is. And essentially, with Bastard, you follow it, it's uh, so, sort of like that power dynamic where you know you have one girl who has um, a hold on this OP magical character, right? But uh, they're in a kingdom, uh, stuff is threatening the kingdom, and 
this boy has the spirit of an even of an evil sorcerer that's trapped inside of his body and the only way that they can summon him is by having a virgin give him a kiss and it's bit pretty funny because the main chick who's best friends with uh this guy character she sort of has this kogome inuyasha relationship with him where he acts like uh when he's transformed into the sorcerer he still keeps the memories of the kid that he embodied so he still has fond feelings of her and he they have this inuyasha kogome relationship and throughout the show it's basically him trying to take over the world but she uh keeps him on a leash and tries to have him help out the kingdom and along the way he runs into these other uh, virgins that kiss him and can have him transform right change back and so he ends up getting his own harem and all throughout the show of course stuff happens to where uh the their clothes get blown off um one of the girls gets cut by a poison dagger on the inside of her thigh and he has to suck out the poison and so he's put in a very risque position and they make noises that are very very um sexually charged and it's just like when you said horny on main it's like this is basically horny on main but um that that was it for bastard i had also seen olive spriggan I have also mentioned um, that I have been keeping up with uh, Shadow House uh, Season 2. I have also been watching Uncle from Another World, which is... Have I mentioned Uncle from Another World to you before, Jay, or no? Yeah, Isekai uh, Oji-san. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it's actually kind of funny because when he was Isekai, a lot of the terms like Sundre was not coined and so like having him come back in our world having to realize and he, he was also a big sony advocate so it's it's just funny because he's like when he comes back he's like okay where, where's where's the next sony console it's like where's where's sony at it's like oh ogisan sony hasn't made a console for years you know like things like that and it, it's it's just pretty funny um seeing that and one of the uh, series that I had as a hopeful that I didn't get to see was Futo Tente. It was the Common Rider uh, series. I didn't make a point. I, I kept up with it to make sure that it was out, but I didn't make a point to sit down and watch it. I definitely need to do that because I'm a bad Common Rider fan if I don't. Uh, that's sort of uh, where we've both been uh, so far uh, in our series and uh, I would say you you've done uh, the better job at uh, following your list than I have, but uh, do do you have any uh, final thoughts on uh, our anime uh, intake before we go on to the news, Jay? Uh, just that I'm very excited for the fall. I mean, we'll talk about it in the next episode, but yeah, fall uh, 2022 is going to be exciting. I think this season was just a little bit, you know, too much of a you know dip in quality. So there wasn't too much terrible things to watch this season or this summer. But yeah, for all, it seems to be highly packed with like sequel seasons and new stuff. So yeah, sorry for that. But yeah, let's move on to the news. 
onwards to the news, Jay, and which news would you, uh, well, yeah, I was going to get into the news, yeah, but as always, time codes are going to be in the description, in the links below. So, first news story of the week is that Crunchyroll, the Crunchyroll Anime Awards, are moving to Japan. So, for the 2023 Anime Awards, which is the seventh, yeah, I always forget that the Crunchyroll Awards are so young, but the seventh iteration of the Crunchyroll Awards will be held in Tokyo next year on March 4th, 2023, of course. So, this move is basically a decision made because of how Sony has bought out uh, Crunchyroll, or... Did they own Funimation? But essentially, Funimation and Crunchyroll merged. Their libraries are not merged, and you know they share some of the same titles, but they're not completely merged. So if you have a Crunchyroll subscription, you not have access to the Funimation library. So you still kind of need both series if you want to watch, you know, all the titles that you're expected to watch. But right now they're separate libraries. But this is one of the first signs of their merger that. Sony Music Solutions has made the decision to move the Country World Awards to Japan to feature more artists, creators of the medium, as you know, such that it was very much U.S. based for the past seven years, which a lot of, you know, voice actors could not attend because of being overseas, of course. But Country World has always put forth that, you know, they want to stress importance when they're dub versions since it reaches a wider market. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this, is that this is going to be like a telltale sign that Crunchyroll is going to make more of an effort to include their Japanese audiences, or like, is this is this anything important to note, Sam? It's very interesting that you mentioned that the voice actors weren't able to attend when it was stateside, because you would think that it's easier for them to be over here, but you said that a lot of the voice actors were overseas? Well, yeah, with the Japanese voice cast, especially. So oh, I mean, Jap- I wanted to get the voice, uh, the the Japanese voice uh, actors to participate in the awards. Okay, I, I can see that. So, yeah, I think that, like, as far as having the Japanese voice actors, it would be easier to have it in Japan. And say, if they wanted to have somebody from the States, say, um, I forgot his name, but the guy that was Spike Spiegel. Um, that voice actor or Christopher Sabat, you know, a big name, like it would be easier to fly them over to, uh, the Japanese location. And you would think now because of the merger, it will be a little bit easier for them to fly some of the American dubbers over there to the Crunchyroll Anime Awards. And it would be very interesting to have some of the Japanese voice actors over there having them participate in the awards so i don't know how they i guess maybe it's it is interesting to note because we don't know how they're going to move forward in the um, i'm trying to i'm trying to think of the word and how the the method the methodology of the awards will go will they do it in japanese and in english in tandem or, you know, like have like a Japanese version being recorded alongside a uh, an English version? Or will they mix the two where it's like half of it will be in Japanese, half of it, half of it will be in English? You know, like things like that. So it's uh, very interesting uh, to take into consideration in how they're going to move forward with the Crunchyroll Awards. Do you think that this would make them more valid of an award? Oh, interesting. I didn't know. I didn't think about that because, yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of the 
Tokyo Animation Awards is what you know standardize excellence in the media. So like you don't really see animes being recognized in the Oscars or even in the Tonys recent or the Emmys that we just talked about that had a nomination for the Cowboy Bebop Cowboy Bebop adaptation as well as Star Wars Vision. So if it switches over, wow, that yeah, if it changes country, it might have some extra prestige to the events, having maybe more animators present and as well as presenting like bilingual, I guess essentially, having it in Japanese and then dubbing it in English later on, or however that might be simulcast. Yeah, that's yeah. very interesting that the conduct of the ceremony will change as well. Okay, cool. I see that. Yeah, it's um no 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 like like uh, I've I, honestly I haven't really seen uh the crunchy rolls being played out as it happens. I've only really seen the results afterwards. And but from what I have seen it seems like it is more of a laid back thing. But since they're going to Japan because anime is taken more seriously as you said like it would force them to be more prestigious about it and have you seen the awards as they've unfolded jay or is your experience similar to mine it's always yeah been post the Mm -hmm. uh, ceremonies or during the award ceremony it very much like the oscars but i think that's just a change of times that you have to make the award ceremonies more engaging and more attractive and shorter as well because like it's Crunchyroll has always functioned in the same way as the video game awards have functioned in the United States. That it's kind of like just for celebrities to show up and not really open to the public. It feels very isolating. So yeah, mm-hmm. if it goes to Japan, like that kind of matches the prestige that Crunchyroll has kind of always upheld. So I'm gonna I'm gonna think the biggest change is going to be probably the categories next year, yeah. since there's going to be like more industry types. They're going to be able to have a more active body or a body that's more familiar with the industry than like a lot of news journalists and American vloggers that have opinions on anime. So they might just change up the uh, judging body as well. So there's a lot of changes with this news now that, I, now that I'm talking oh, about it. Oh, it is the judging body. Yeah, no, the judging body is definitely going to be different. I think if they hadn't had more Japanese judges, they're definitely going to have to change that. And Oh, I'm excited now because now I feel like it won't be a popularity contest anymore. <laughs> yeah, less of a popularity contest, which has been the biggest criticism of the Country World Awards. All right, cool. So, yeah, we'll follow out the story because we'll come back with our own nominations and talk about what we think should the Country Rolls recognize. But, yeah, all right, for right now, let's move on to the second news story, which is kind of related to the first, but Japan has further eased their travel restrictions. So, this news is basically a projection that this month that they're going to have a increased or technically a decrease in the limits of how many people can enter the country. Right now it's set at 20,000 per day, which the proposed suggestion is to bump it up to 50,000 a day, as well as to cancel the requirement of having a group that you have to go with. So now you can individually travel to Japan as long as your itinerary is supervised by a travel agency. So that's for this month. And then the following proposal for further easing is that you'll no longer need to have a negative testing as long as you have a three-shot vaccination. So we've talked about going to Japan for the past. uh, Well, we talked about it mainly before everything happened, but this is definitely signs that Japan 
is going to fully open by next year. It's kind of been marching towards that since March, where they opened up the country back to students and to business travelers. In April, they extended or decreased the entry level. And then in June, they went to the guided tours requirement. So there were a lot of projections that Japan might be closed for five years, but we're just under three years. So I'm very happy that Japan's finally opening up. I am excited because I, you and I, we both had uh, planned to go to Japan during the pandemic, or at least had, uh, I, I had purchased tickets during the pandemic, hoping that it would be uh, done by now. But by the time that I had to, by, by the time we real, I realized that uh, the pandemic was still going on, my passport expired. But no longer. I have now renewed my passport. I have waited the forever and a half to get my passport back again, and I have it in hand. And it's also funny, too, because me and some of my coworkers, we sort of, quote unquote, bullied one of our own to go and get his passport. So now we have some loose plans to uh, go to Japan uh, within the next year or two. Uh, so that we can enjoy it with uh, uh, open arms and uh, open um, restrictions. So I am excited. What about you, Jay? Yeah, I can see this is to be a positive thing. But again, it's always been a government concern given how elderly the population in Japan is. You kind of kind of overlook how um, this disease and how this pandemic has affected the elderly. So, you know, it was good reason that they're finally easing the restrictions now. But, you know, uh, it hasn't been really recorded really on a financial or economical impact. What has the lack of tourism done to Japan, even though like tourism is a big part of Japan's economy? It's more domestic tourism than foreign tourism. So I'm not surprised. It's just a good story to hear, and especially with the country roles moving to Japan, as well as the World Expo coming to Japan in 2025. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, good. Now that Japan's open, we'll be able to participate in more Japanese things. But uh, on to the next news story. This is the um, kind of a big drop or a big drop of news is that the CEO of MAPPA said that he wants to publish or at least put into production all of the works of Tatsuki Fujimoto, who is the manga of Chainsaw Man. So, Mappa is currently working on Chainsaw Man, and the second arc of the manga did start back in July, I believe. Yeah, the second arc. Yes, it did. I'm not going to lie. It, it was funny um, because I have this mini on my phone. And as soon as it dropped, I'm like, I got I to gotta see what the, what the first chapter is going to be about. I, I got it. And it got me so hyped for Chainsaw Man. I, I am ready for it. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. I'm glad you're reading it because there's a lot of works that, well, sorry, there's a very small number of works that Fujimoto uh, has actually worked on. So he has Chainsaw Man, of course, that's what he's known for. He also, before Chainsaw Man, what really got him noticed to you know actually put Chainsaw Man into publication was Fire Punch which was a supernatural filler that only lasted for eight volumes. It's So I said this was a drop of news because this is a high-level studio, MAPPA studio, saying like, oh, we want to do everything this guy has <laughs> this guy has produced so far. And that's like high praise for a anime studio to say like, oh, yeah, this one artist, this one mangaka, 
we want to do everything he's ever published. And, you know, he's looking forward to writing more and what? drawing more. His exclusive studio. <laughs> right. Yeah. So buying all the rights to do anime and put it under their branch, which is a nice concept. And I think it's going to be a big thing for the industry to say, like, you know, we have Sunrise that does all of Mecha. Well, technically all of Mecha or all of Gundam. So it has a history of claiming things. But, you know, for a studio CEO to say, like, we want this specific mangaka to only produce their work here is a turn of events or change of pace so the other works he has are basically one shots which are look back which is a comedy drama basically like bakuman that focuses on the creation process of manga he has goodbye eerie which is a one shot as well and this is talking about filmmaking yeah i i i did i did uh read a little bit of that i didn't finish it but I believe you would enjoy it if you hadn't read it already. You would definitely enjoy it because it's uh, very much a cinephile um, uh, one-shot. Gotcha. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I've only heard the name because of um, Fujimoto's you know, reputation, but yeah, I'll check it out. Uh, Goodbye, Eri is like a film um, examination, and it has actually an interesting premise is that two high school students are basically creating a documentary series but the whole twist and the fantastical element of it is that one of them is kind of playing a vampire <laughs> so it's just like uh you know like a goonies kind of type of adventure story or you know showing the lives of kids going on like boyhood essentially but like oh one of the kids might be a vampire <laughs> but you know it's a real human story and then the last one is just uh just listen to a song which is also one shot not much news is a not much information is uh, known about this because it just started. So something to keep your eye out on. But yeah, Sam, you're a big chainsaw man. Is there something about Fujimoto's work that really makes you or makes this claim justified? After reading uh, Fire Punch, Goodbye, Airy, and a little bit of Chainsaw Man, there is definitely a common theme or it, it's it's very weird. It's like if you read all of Neil Gaiman stuff, right? There's just something about the way that Neil Gaiman presents a story that makes you keep wanting to read more. And there's, uh, it, like that, it's, it's very hard for me to describe because it, you can see that same through line in a lot of Fujimoto's work where, like, it has, like, they play around with some of the similar themes. So, like, for instance, in Goodbye Airy, um, the main character, he, uh, makes a documentary about his mother uh, dying, right? And basically, you know, his mom's like, hey, I want you to, you know, make uh, a footage or at least, you know, keep a video, a vlog, right? So that, you know, you have something to do. He makes a video and uh, he uh, puts it in uh, for like a school competition and he does something at the end of the film that puts everybody off that makes him feel like a loser and there's one character that says that she liked his film but he did something very stupid about it and so throughout the course of the work she basically makes him sit down and watch uh old school movies old school classic movies that she thinks that he would that he should learn from in order to remake that movie again and the way that they interact, it's very childish. It's very childlike. And we see that similar or same interaction in Chase on Man with a lot of his 
uh, female counterparts and how he talks with them. It's very childlike. It's very um, uh, angst and on the cups, cusp of uh, uh, hormonal changes. And uh, Fire Punch is different in the sense that, you know, the characters, you the character that we follow, it's not necessarily um, somebody in adolescence, but it's uh, somebody that has gone through great trauma and is having to uh, live and provide for those that are... Uh, I'm trying to remember that those are close to him. And uh, are you are you familiar with the synopsis for Fire Punch or no? Uh, I just saw that it was a supernatural thriller. Like like you said, it is, it is supernatural. Like there there are powers in here, and I would say like the tone of the story, it's very mature, and the the pictures and the scenes are very gruesome, very much like Chainsaw Man. But there is a heart, uh, you know, that makes you keep uh, moving forward, and. I don't want to give too much away because he does something that's very, very, uh, that, that's very, very shocking. But like for the uh, character situation and what they're living through, it's very understandable why they're going through that. And we're basically following like this tale of revenge. Uh, so I would say that he takes the concept of Amaretsu, basically like the fire that never dies. Uh, along with uh, somebody's uh, powers of uh, regeneration and does something that's very, very interesting that we haven't seen before. And the way that it's framed in a mature story on uh, people who were like down on their luck and who, you know, didn't have, uh, who, who were in poverty and basically having to... Uh, seek validation or uh, like basically like that tale of revenge in uh, uh, making sure that those who put them in that situation or who had hurt their loved ones, you know, pay or, or uh, see justice. It's done very, very well. Um, so I'm excited that MAPPA uh, made the claim that they made. And when they make Fire Punch, just know that it is going to be just as pretty as Chainsaw Man and Jujutsu Kaisen, and it's definitely, I'm glad that MAPPA would be the studio to animate it as well. Oh, that's good to hear, because eight volumes is enough for a 12-episode uh, season, and then Look Back and Goodbye Eerie have the kind of vibes of a film, so potentially we'll have two films for MAPPA and another season, or a season for Fire Punch, so I was very excited to see if any of this comes true, but no, it's just a statement to, you know, look forward to. So, our last new story, which I don't want to say is cringe, but I do want to talk about it just a little bit, because it is that the Fortnite crossover event with Dragon Ball Z has launched with costumes and items and in-game quests and features. So, this is the second iteration of their... Uh, Fortnite X anime collaborations. The first was with Naruto back in November. Yeah, the original uh, setup was in November, and then it had an update in June. So we're coming on Dragon Ball as its uh, August um, release. So this is a series of paid costumes, which go with Goku, Vegeta, Bulma, and Beerus, uh, the God of Destruction. In-game, you can use the Kamehameha, and as well as fly on the Nimbus Cloud. And the in-game features, which is very interesting, is that 
you can go in-game on Fortnite and watch episodes of Dragon Ball Z Super. So Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting that they did that. Okay. So the only thing I wanted to ask from you, Sam, is that I know you don't play Fortnite, but if you had a choice between One Piece and Bleach being the next iteration, which one would you choose and what anime would you be kind of interested in seeing in Fortnite? I would want Bleach just because the Thousand Year War arc is coming up, so that would definitely hype up Bleach and the amount of action that you do in that that I have seen in Fortnite with uh, the Kame, uh, Kamehamehas and I think uh, Gallic Guns as well. Like you can, it's basically like in the Budokai and uh, Tenkaichi games where if the beams clash, like you have to do something in order for your beam to uh, overtake the others. So like that was interesting. Um, One Piece, it's good. I feel like they can hold on to One Piece uh later on i feel like uh, if they wanted to capitalize um you know the fact that bleach is coming back out you know hide it back up again it would be bleach uh that they should go with next and they can use one piece for another special another time but as far as wanting i i want to say bleach but i kind of want one piece just because it seems like nobody over here in the west knows about one piece so i would want them to do one piece but I'm going to go with Bleach. I'm going to go with Bleach. Um, and it's just funny that Fortnite has sort of become this parody of a game. It's not even like the uh, unique shooter that it once was. They don't have building anymore. And now, you know, you can essentially just play as different anime characters with different uh, powers in the game. And it seems like... <laughs> It's, it's it's just funny. It's like they're just like throwing anything in Fortnite now, and just you know, oh, this is still Fortnite. It's like, but this was nothing like what Fortnite was. So I don't know. It's it's I I just find it funny, and it's a lot different. What about you, Jay? Like which uh, out of the two anime that you've uh, suggested, which anime did you uh, would you choose that Fortnite would cross over with next? Right, because it seems to be like this confluence of maybe that's not the right word but uh there's just this weird bubble of anime going on right now so i'm assuming the marketing decision of why dragon ball z is now now is because next year they're celebrating the 10 year anniversary of battle of gods which introduced beerus into the canon so i think that's kind of why he's a playable character i don't know why bulma is there i thought android oh, no, I was I thought Android 21 might be a better choice if they just wanted like a female strong character because the design for Android 21 is outstanding. But mm -hmm. yeah, Bulma doesn't really match up to a god of destruction and Goku and Vegeta. So it's very odd uh, of the choice um, because like, again, Bleach is about to have its new season premiere this year. And then One Piece just had Red for its uh, anime film, but also wrapped up the Wano arc. Um, but I would guess next year they would probably do Bleach, given that the season will have dropped or will have concluded or, you know, the first half would have concluded by then, by the next installment for the update. But if I really wanted a anime to be represented, I would pick Yu Yu Hakusho because you have Spirit Gun from Yusuke, which is kind of similar to the Kamehameha, but also colorful cast of characters that you can wrap around 
kind of like projectile attacks and like you can do oh no no, no it, it makes sense because uh fortnite it's still a shooter so even if you do bleach you know it's like they they don't do uh cqc fighting in uh fortnite unless they've changed that too and it's not a shooter anymore uh, I no idea, <laughs> but uh, the the reason I really picked it is because right now with the Dragon Ball Z update, they're doing the Tournament of Power. In the Yu Yu Hakusho, they had the Dark Tournaments, I believe yeah. that's what it was called. So it was like, yeah, there would be an easy, like, just match cut of assets to you. So I was like, okay, cool. I could see that. But that is all for the news, Sam. Hopefully not finishing on some cringe news because there is this cringe movie that we have to talk about. <laughs> Yes. Oh my goodness. Again, time codes in the description below. And for those of us, uh, for our dear listeners who are only uh, following us on YouTube, please check out our full episode if you want to get the full experience. Because we had definitely talked about some interesting news in what Japan is doing moving forward. And maybe something that's quote unquote cringe that made us cringe or that will make you cringe. That's for you to decide. So, onwards to our uh, choice of anime for the day. We will be talking about Berserk, the Golden Age Arc 2, the Battle for Doltry movie. And, <laughs> Jay, as you had mentioned a little bit earlier, this movie was a little cringe for you. Do you Would you like to explain why, or would you want me to go over the synopsis uh, first? Uh, just a little entry before the synopsis is that this is a follow-up episode to the episode we did with our guest, Jordan. Sorry, not Jordan. <laughs> um, Gerard Peterson. Well, I know a Jordan now, but also Gerard. But Gerard Peterson, where he talked about the first installment of the movie, and he'll be coming back for the third installment and the final installment of the movie next year because the, but yeah, uh, coming back for the last movie, which is called the advent, I believe, but yeah, for this is the middle installment. So not really necessary for our guests to come back for this one because not much happens in this movie, but yeah, you can talk yeah. about the premise of it and I will get into what's cringe about it later. Exactly. So quick little synopsis, as Jay had mentioned, this is a sequel movie. And we are following the main characters, uh, Guts, Casca, and Griffith from their exploits in the previous movie. And the main synopsis in this one is we basically see our main characters take over a fort uh, for their king that has been notorious for being the last bastion and being the only stronghold preventing their kingdom's expansion. And throughout the film, we see their struggles in overcoming this fort and what they do in order to do so. We also see some development from uh, Guts from the previous movie in wanting to become more of independent and more on his own and we get to see how that changes the dynamic of their entire band which is known as the band of the hawks and we get to see a little bit of the fallout due to guts's decision and uh that's essentially the soup and nuts of the uh, synopsis for this movie and very much like the first one, 
This was done by Studio 4 Degrees Celsius. And again, Berserk is from a manga. Its genre are action, adventure, drama, fantasy, horror, supernatural. The themes are gore, military, and mythology. This was a R-rated movie with the length of an hour and a half. Now, Jay, um, I, I just, uh, what, were, what were some of the thoughts that you wanted to go into? Because it seemed like you had some thoughts, and I have some thoughts, but uh, you being the newer uh, uh, Berserk, um, or being newer to Berserk, I am interested on hearing your thoughts first. Right. Yeah, so I guess a lot of my critiques of this, at least the negative ones, is the same as I would repeat from the first episode. So again, I again encourage people to go listen to that because of, you know, just, again, the times that we talked about, how much of the CGI jitteriness affects your viewing pleasure of this Mm -hmm. and the switch, the constant switching between CGI or, you know, computer generated images to the traditional you know, 2D uh, cell-drawn animations is very jarring. And I actually noticed it more this time. So I think because I knew what to expect, I was paying more attention to it. So again, if you're watching these in, in sequence, you might pay attention to more of the animation flaws or weaknesses because of that. So it might dampen your experience to that first time where you're like, oh, this is a 10-year-old movie. So of course, it's going to be not the best. We talked about that in our episode of Kingdom as yeah. well. You know, the ability of animation back in the day to, you know, profile these large epic battles across a giant field is not that spot on. So, you know, to modern eyes, it's going to be very jarring. Where do I want to start? I have so many positive things to say about this, that this was very much a good inclusion, you know, to like a three-act structure that we're going to be witnessing. Like, so if you're thinking about it in the Lord of the Rings terms, it definitely feels on par with the two towers in quality of tackling a fortress that needs to be assaulted. So there's like this design of a Helm's Deep kind of Minotaur's look mm-hmm. to it. Because of course this is taking place in like a alternate timeline where it's covering the Hundred Year War, which was between the French and the English back in the 1400s. Sorry, I'm not a history guy, but I think that's the proper time period. And they even dropped the name like Tudors and Midland to kind of represent Mm -hmm. that. But, you know, they don't actually use the actual family names or the governments that were in charge. Yeah, it was. okay. so sorry, I'm rambling. But it is the positive things I like most about this was that you get that Guts character is at a like precipice of change, I guess. So I like Mm -hmm. that. Yes, he was a war dog. In the first movie, he was more contemplative in this one. And going in the third movie, he's essentially a changed man. He's like, oh, I've only been following the dreams of another that I respect. But how the last movie left off, you got the reveal that Griffith only considered people that follow their own dreams as his friends. So Guts wants Griffith to consider him a friend. And how that gets translated to Griffin is so heartbreaking I was really feeling bad at the end of this movie. So I got caught up in a lot of the characterization of the characters yeah. versus how I was talking very terribly about um, Casca's character in the last movie. So do you think that uh, 
co- your view of Casca has it gotten any better, or is it more or less the same? Uh, it's pretty much the same. Again, I talked in length about it last time, yes. but they did not give any time to her at all, and what they did show of her did repeated the same mistakes as they did with the last movie, and even to an extreme degree in like the first couple of scenes of this movie. And again, I don't want to rag on it that much because I called her a Sakura, like worse than Sakura last time, which proved to be true this time because now they're introducing some real world elements to her struggles. And I'm like, okay, you can't make a realistic character like this, but then put her in clown shoes. (laughs) Um, So again, it's really rough writing for one character and then like excellent writing for the other two characters. So again. Just repeating something. I don't want to repeat what I said last time. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, no. I, I, I would say I agree with you, but I feel like with with this movie, um, in, in my opinion, I felt like it dragged on a bit, that, that it didn't need to be as long as it was. Uh, because it, it seemed like the... Sometimes when they were focusing on the big battle scenes, it felt like it was a lot longer than it needed to be. And I, I guess mainly because, like, I sort of know the end. Like, if you are... that, that I would say that would sort of be, like, a negative of the series. Like, if you know, like, how it's going to end, then you sort of can understand, like, the outcomes of skirmishes like these. Whereas if you're following this as it's coming out, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. Uh, for instance, like you don't know if Casca's going to die because of what happens to her, uh, because I knew uh, what what the story was going to entail later on. Like, it it didn't really uh, phase me like what she was going through. And, but I would say that the interactions between the main three that was mentioned earlier, Griffith, Casca, uh, and Gut, it's a lot better, especially near the end of the film. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the animation for this film, it was during that conflict between Guts and Griffith when Guts was saying that he was going to leave the Band of the Hawk. Like, it felt like from then on, like, that's where the budget for the film was in terms of cinematography and animation, because the animation was just so crisp and clean. From that moment on, when Guts runs into the Band of the Hawk in the field, and even though the ambush for the Band of the Hawks uh, was CGI, it was done a lot better than the CGI in the earlier parts of the film, even though we've seen Guts's feats of strength earlier. So, I mean, am I, am I correct in saying that the animation uptick was around that time, Jay? Or am I just biased? You're completely correct because I noticed it. So there is a really graphic sex scene in this movie. So it earns its R rating. But um, from that happens after that conflict. But yeah, because there's like a shot happening behind the fireplace. And I'm like, and I had to pause and was like, why is this so, why is the sex scene so well-we shot and lit and <laughs> animated? Like, <laughs> Fluidly is, yeah. So I didn't go back to watch the um, scene you're talking about when they um, they meet on the top of the hill. But yeah, from there, it was like a good stand because that's like that's something that you would show someone to say, this is why you would watch the um, yeah, why movie, you would watch it. But it completely doesn't tell you anything else 
about the rest of the movie because it's such the high quality production to it that you're like, oh, they put all the money shots at the end of the movie. So <laughs> I kind of feel promising for the third movie. So again, these were the first two were filmed or sorry, animated together while the last one was animated later out of the production yeah. schedule. So yeah, that probably is the case is that the first movie did well enough. And then by the time they got to the end scenes for this movie, they were like, oh, here's some more money. So <laughs> here's some extra time to make it good. So you're going into the third one, like with a lot of hype. So yeah, that's probably part of it. Just going back to the characters, uh, because I just thought about it with Casca. I say Casca's character is a little bit better in this film than it was in the previous film. But as again, oh, you know, not by much. <laughs> oh, really? So I, I would say, no, no, no. I, no, I, I, I say better, but not by much. Because we, like, mainly her interactions with Guts, like, at the dance party. Because we get to see their relationship deepen. And they are, you know, it's not simply just, I hate you for the sake of hating you anymore, right? Because Casca now has a little bit more respect for Guts because of how he helped her when she was fallen ill. And she loosened up and she was more warm to him, allowing him to open up to her a little bit, right? Him, because at that time, uh, as you said, Guts was on the precipice of change, right? And he's still wrestling with his feelings on what he has to do in order to be considered an equal by Griffith. And before the dancing hall scene, we see guts in the middle of the battlefield like like you know it's just slow build up of you know like what am i doing what should i be doing and Casca even goes off to say it's like this isn't like you why are you here with us because you normally you know hate this type of thing and you know he goes off you know just showing how he's trying to change right and so i feel like that instance it's a step in the right direction for Casca's character, but it's not very consistent, right? It's, again, like, it's sort of when I start to like Casca's character in the film is when she starts interacting with her, with Guts and Griffith, because I would say even um, when the the showdown between Guts and Griffith, that's when uh, Casca's character becomes good. And even how she leads the Band of the Hawk in the ambush, it's done very well. But and, you know, it shows that, you know, people respect her and that, you know, she can be very capable. But that's for the last third of the film, which is what, maybe 20, 15 minutes. And we have this rest of an hour and 15 of soccer. Of, I'm sorry, not soccer, but of Casca's character just being just being a damsel when she shouldn't be uh what, what, what are your thoughts on um uh my uh assessment in those scenes gotcha yeah i was just processing because i was like hey cool one completely opposite size of the field with this one so i'm in the camp of <laughs> yeah i'm in the camp that her character worsens in this because i get the vibe of that she's okay for one okay but as an english teacher um, let's do a quick lesson. Do you know where the word vagina comes from, Sam? Um, I think it has to do with a sheath, right? Because uh, I, I remember, 
I remember because Guts has that line where it's like, you know, every sword must be turned to a sheath. And I didn't know if that's what they were going for that line, um, or at least like the writer. But I felt like Guts was just trying to talk to her as best as he can because he's a warrior. Like, that's that's all he knows. Like, every sword needs to go back to its master. Right, because that would be, like, the more proper way to express that idea if that's what he was trying to convey. But in this, I like wrestling on this edge of they keep presenting characters against Casca. So her main adversary in this is General Idom. Idom? He basically wields a giant trident, and he comes up. Oh, you 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 mean uh, Doctor Robotnik? Uh, sorry, in the English dub, it's uh, Doctor Robotnik's voice or Eggman. <laughs> I put him down as Armstrong in my notes. Um, but, okay. Um, yeah, so he's a he's a general of the opposing army, and his whole premise is like, oh, oh, like his first introduction with her. Oh, like what's a woman commander doing here? Are you just uh, did you only get to your position by sleeping with Griffith and? I will offer you the same position in my army. You can sleep with all my men all you want. You'll have like all these freedoms as long as you sleep with people. So, you know, yeah, that's kind of guy a whole stuff. Yeah. in the military sense and mm-hmm. guts rides that line as well, because sure. He respects Casca uh, way of Griffith vouching for her, but mm-hmm. he never really acknowledges as a, opponent to him which kind of sucks because of how they present her in the first movie so in this movie they're like oh now she's falling in love with guts and or at least becoming more amenable to him and i'm like yeah that's not the direction you should be going as a strong character it's like they make so many points of like showing her past of being sexually assaulted and being Mm -hmm. saved by griffith and getting her life purpose and like how that whole worship thing that we talked about in the first episode kind of came about. So there's a lot of fleshing out of her character again, but it's like flushing her character down the toilet as well, in my opinion, because she's going against all these opponents in the story that say like, she can't do this because she's a woman. You can't do this. This is your place as a woman. And then she ends up killing them or at least the general, but it's like not done in a very satisfying way. So it's not like overpowering. It's not through tactics or intelligence. It just happens for that story beat to feel like it happens. Mm-hmm. So maybe yeah. I'm just feeling overly not satisfied with how they present her character. Like she talks about like when she does go to the ballroom and dance with Guts, she's like, oh, do I look pretty? Does this suit me? And he says like, oh, you're lovely. And she like blushes, blushes and like Guts tell him, okay, if you had courage, like if you are aspiring to be in my position next to Griffith's side, go dance with him. And she's like, nah, I'm too scared by the end. So it's like, I don't know where her character is going. So in the flashes for the next movie, we see that Guts and Casca have sex. <laughs> so I'm assuming something happens in the next movie that makes them a lot closer. So I'll see how her character development flushes out fully. But for right now, I'm like going to the third movie, like, Wow, you became a worse Sakura than you were in the last time you were Sakura. Okay, cool. <laughs> no, I, I understand. And um, uh, d- d- as I said, like for me, like I like uh, Casca's character uh, from the ballroom scene uh, towards the end, and when she does uh, kill uh, Armstrong Robotnik, dude, 
it is before the ballroom scene. And as you said, like, it's very, very dissatisfying because when she does overcome her obstacles, it's always like she's always pit, pitted, her back is pitted up against the wall, things like that. It's not very satisfying in a, a girl power type moment. I will say, like, we do get some lines from Guts, like when she does fall ill. Uh, he does mentions like, "Hey, you're not acting like you used to." It's like, "What you know? What's going on?" Like there, there is like that uh, notice. But um, I'm trying trying to uh, think of where I'm going uh, with Casca's character. But I, I guess like to get a couple more uh, closing thoughts um, before we say whether to uh, resurrect or rebury. I sort of want you to remind me on why Griffith is so obsessive with guts because it, it, it's it's still boggling to me I know we've talked about it last time and I meant to listen to our podcast again but I didn't make the time to that um guts's aspiration and his uh, view of Griffith it's very understandable but I never really understood why Griffith viewed Guts in such in such a high regard way. We see that he's very conflicted when Guts wants to leave the band, and he's leaving them at uh, their zenith up until this point, right? And I guess, uh, I guess, like he would feel like he's betrayed, but it doesn't like. Because you he's leaving them at the highest that they've been, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, he's betraying them. Like it's definitely a good sign that it's like he's trying to search for what he needs or what he wants. The conflict ensues, uh, and the results are, you know, I would say like it's a great show of growth for guts because he's a more refined fighter and basically in one move shows Griffith that he can take him out if he wanted to, but he's not going to. And it just crushes Griffith. And I'm not sure if it crushes Griffith because he lost a pawn that he could depend on or if he truly lost a friend. Because we see him go and basically uh, has revenge sex with a suitor of his because he's, you know, trying to regain that sense of control that he had lost. and. We see him curl up and basically weep because guts had went away. So, would you mind? Would you mind reminding me on why Griffith has such a high regard for guts and what your thoughts are on Griffith acting the way he did afterwards? Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So this is very interesting, and again, don't want to keep pointing back to the first episode, but yeah. we talked about how he's a uh, narcissistic uh, I forgot what the disorder was but he's a narcissist essentially and if you buy into the thought that you know Griffith is wanting to be king and that Guts is a mad dog essentially like yeah you kind of put it correctly by just saying he's a pawn but essentially mm -hmm. he's the greatest pawn he's the greatest chess piece on the board so like he's essentially the queen that yeah. That the king by himself can't do much without the queen. And I th that's how you envision the two, like the king and the queen, essentially. Two pieces that can't work without one another. And the idea that 
well, one thing you said that I'll allude to in my closing today, but I definitely want to side that Guts betrayed them. That Guts betrayed oh, really? the and Griffith. Because one, like if you look at the that hilltop scene where you talked about that Guts leaves, he doesn't give an explanation, so he's left the Hawks with the idea that like, there's a lot of mixed emotions and everybody voices opinions, mm-hmm. and that's one of the positives to this whole movie is that they give a lot of needed attention to the Hawks because, like, I don't know anyone's names, but you get their character models down in your head, you get their personalities coded down. Yeah, they don't have any special special weaponry or specialization there's a tall black guy with a mohawk uh there's a short young a short young commander there's a snarky sleazy guy that's a lady chaser and then a uh, noble a slightly older um young guy <laughs> yeah 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 a noble bowl cut kind of kid guy yeah oh so, yeah it's like you get all their faces kind of memorized in this movie because a lot of the times there's a lot of close-ups to their actions a lot of the Action scenes are shot close up, so you see that they're actually part of the action, where last movie they were just a part of the crowd. They were just yeah. a part of the Hawks. And now you have attention on who they are. So that top scene definitely feels like a betrayal because, one, that Griffith doesn't understand Guts, and they don't talk it out because Guts is coming from the stance that I need to become better or follow a dream and him winning that fight kind of signifies that, that he breaks Griffith's sword, which symbolizes Griffith's possession over him, essentially. Yeah. And then he just walks away and Casa chases after him, like, don't leave! Um, kind of thing. So it's like a lot of mixed feelings, but where was I going with this? Oh, I was going with the sense that Guts is something that Griffith can't replace and he's never been denied anything since childhood. So you even get that impression that the enemy commander comes out to the battlefield because him and Griffith have a past relationship. I didn't know it was like a sexual slave kind of situation or what happened with that. Like they have a small exchange, but I wasn't kind of getting Mm -hmm. the past flushed out enough, but yeah, it's that Griffith has gotten what he needs to fulfill his dreams so for whatever badness that's going to happen eventually is a result of this betrayal yeah and it's it's, it's just very odd because like, like you said he hasn't been rejected anything since uh he was a child so when he does get this rejection he's not given any context or yeah, yeah he, he's not really given any context it's out of the blue to him and if guts had just mentioned it right or it's like i felt like I need to grow so that I can be of better service or something like that. If he mentioned something along those lines, like it would be a little bit better, but that's not Guts's character. He doesn't necessarily know how to emote either. He's just through action. Uh, just going back to Griffith, like because he's given like this uh, rejection out of nowhere, he acts like a child. He throws a tantrum and he does uh, flex his control over what what he does have control over and even though he does that like he finds no solace but because he was impulsive he basically uh undoes everything that he has done up until that point and it's just uh i would say like it's almost uh it's, it's leaning towards shakespearean a little bit which is why i really appreciate like those last few scenes and 
it's it's going to be interesting moving forward and seeing your opinion on the third movie and how things resolve and where they go from there. And it, it just seems as though like a lot of calamity and a lot of tragedy could have been uh, saved or could have been diverted if people just talked things out. You know, it's I guess I had a lot more to say about this as well, but I don't think he made an impulsive decision either. You don't think he made an impulsive decision? You don't think that was impulsive at all? No, because Why? there is a lot of subtlety in the language going on in the scene. Again, like, you know, you don't really. So, like, before the sex scene with him and the princess, yeah. there's a lot of strong body language in the performance. Again, like, a moment of just good cinematography is that Griffith withdraws from the princess. Like, he, like, cups her boobs, sorry, breasts, and then, like, retracts his hand, and then he, and then he just waits for a confirmation from her that it's okay. So it, there's no moment in that that, yeah, it's no moment in that that I feel that he's like pent up or going in for revenge sex or forcing himself. Because like, if, I think if they wanted to make that more clear, they would have just had him sexually assault her, which makes more sense if you're talking about impulsion and rage and frustration. I would I would say like if if you remember from like how Griffith has been up until this point he has been very manipulative in how he gets what he wants like with guts because of how guts is guts is a very physical character so he does things very physically with the princess we've seen him basically manipulate and change her direction just by doing things change you know um distracting her attention like when she was trying to talk about actual things in the previous movie and be an actual character he uh distracts her with some music right just do, doing things uh to distract her attention and i don't know like i felt like again again like with me like i i, I felt like he was doing things that he knows would work to reinforce to himself he's like doing to reinforce the narcissistic uh person or to validate his narcissistic tendencies to show that he does still have control over the people that he believes he does yeah i think there's a lot of ways mm. to write that scene or actually just interpret it period so it's like that could have been swayed a lot by a different order of operations or even actions mm. but i think the whole crying part at the end kind of sells it more for me because it wasn't that a loss of control is that he's never going to get that back again because after that he gets captured by the royal guards and he kind of blares out that, oh, the king's in love with his own daughter. And then yeah. that probably wasn't something he just thought of while he was being tortured to death. <laughs> it's probably something he had in the back of the mind. So it's like he always, and for me, watching that scene and watching the torture afterwards, it feels like he wanted to get caught almost. Or, you know, it feels like he went into that situation to be punished because of how he felt letting Guts go. And again, that's maybe just me projecting as mm. a complex appreciator of, you know, villains. Is that you have to really write your villains in a very believable way for their turn to yeah. be, to root for them, essentially. And I think that's really hard to do in, like, medieval dark fantasy stories to root for yeah. the villain so you know that's why i say it's a betrayal on gus part and that this is a selling point for griffith's turn you know again if that happens in the next movie that 
either, you know, he kills the king or whatever might happen. But yeah, I definitely didn't think it was an impulse decision. So that, that's, that's interesting. So you think that it was premeditated. He went in knowing that he was going to get caught, that he was going to get tortured and that all of his people, again, like, again, like everything that he built up was going to be taken away from him. Right, because that's, again, selling the idea of how important Guts is in his opinion, motion of him becoming king. It's like, Guts became, I guess, synonymous with his goal. So, like, once Guts yeah. left, he just became hopeless. But, you know, that doesn't rob you of your, you know, intelligence or your, you know, narcissism. And I guess, like, in a, in a sense, like, he was still in control of what he wanted to do with himself. I mean, he just pulled the trigger. And, again, you know, he just pulled the trigger himself. So that works. That's that. That's very interesting. So now, and you mentioned earlier that this was a, a good addition story-wise to the trilogy so far. So, and I, I can't remember if you said the for the previous film to uh, resurrect and rebury it. But what are your thoughts on uh, this film? Right, I believe last time that we opted for since it's a trilogy of movies, we can't really. Determine yeah, if it's until we see it as a whole. So, but right now, I'll give it a uh, resurrect just because I'm definitely watching the third one. <laughs> so, just on that basis <laughs> alone, it's like, yeah, like if I didn't like um, Fellowship of the Ring, I wouldn't have gone to see you know, Two Towers, no matter how much I liked or disliked mm-hmm. it. So, uh, yeah, resurrect. But I mean, alongside that, why I really was so attracted to this movie over the first one, same way as I'm more attracted to. Uh, two towers over fellowship of the ring i'm just going to keep making that comparison just for you know easy sakes is that yeah i like that there was a consistent uh focus on the characters again so because it felt very much like a setup to the story in the first movie so like we got the appearance of a demon which there was no mystical elements in this movie except for like a very quick shot of a fairy in a cage yeah, with that, that was that was basically a call to, I guess, where the manga was at the time because Guts ends up partying with a fairy character. And I think that character is either that same one or is related to the character that he is, um, that he was current, that he was palling around with at the time the movie came out. The strengths of this is that, like, they focus a little bit more on the characters and their uh not change over time but like the setup to what's going to happen which again like Gerard very poignantly said that there's a lot of stuff that happens in the third movie a lot of bad stuff that happens in the third movie <laughs> so assuming that we get attached to the characters in this one because there's going to be a lot of bad stuff that happens to them in the next one so it very much um settled in my mind that this served a better purpose than the setup of the story you know like any story does but yeah. I kind of like the Pete interest, the romantic interest between Guts and um, Casca for this one, even though I said it does flush her character down the toilet a little bit. It does yeah. set up like to a potential, I guess, wellspring of her character in the potential next movie. So we'll see. But yeah, resurrect for me for this second installment. So I would say I, w- I would agree with you and that um, I would resurrect it as well. I... I'm a little hesitant to say because a lot of the reasons why I like this movie and why you like the movie too is the characterization that they have in the characters. But as I said before, they don't really do that until the last third of the movie. But it does it well enough. 
and I am interested to remember why the third one was so good. And hopefully after watching the third one, it would make me review the second one in a better light. And I'm also very interested to hear your uh, reactions on the third one as well. So I, for now, it's a re uh, resurrection from the both of us. And Jay, before we go on to uh, close up, did you have any other thoughts or anything uh, in regards to both of us uh, resurrecting it or anything else that we might have missed that you wanted to mention? Uh, no, just the kind of ploy. Well, I guess one thing is that the ploy to mm-hmm. get the castle or to penetrate the forces, uh, fortress was just to have all the enemies uh, empty. <laughs> The fortress, which I don't think is yeah. ever something that a military organization that's been standing for more than a hundred years would do. So it's like, <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe that that's what, you know, the writers came up with. Or I don't even know if that's from the original manga from Kentaro, but yeah, it just seemed like a very contrived way to breach Helm's Deep when, like, in the Lord of the Rings movie, they used a giant explosive. So it was like, I didn't know what I was expecting, but I was kind of expecting some military brilliance. Of like going yeah. over the cliff face, which there is a cliff that's over the um, fortress, and I thought they were going to like rain bombs or something over it. But you know, I was trying to problem solve before they uh, actually did it. But I was like very <laughs> underwhelmed that that's how they won the day. Essentially, you're like, oh come on, Griffith, you you've done better. I've seen you. You can do better than this. <laughs> Other than that, no. Okay, so. Again, that was a uh, unanimous uh, resurrection for the both of us on the second uh, Berserk movie. And we will be on hiatus for about a month or so. However, fear not, uh, fair listeners, for when we return from our hiatus, we will review Jay's pick that will give us a psychological thriller on par with Dexter, along with the sci-fi implications that has been shown to us through Minority Report and several Black Mirror episodes in the 2012 franchise Cycle Pass. And I know, Jay, you have been excited to talk about that, so I am looking forward to that as well. But, Jay, with that being said, what have you got for us today? All right, so I was going to read a little bit from the Treaty of Troyes, which ended the Hundred Year War, you know, in our timeline, the real world. <laughs> but I was thinking more of that. It was, well, one, the treaty is very boring and has nothing to do with what was going on in the dessert. So I'm going to close on a quote from an unknown author. And the quote goes as such. The saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. It comes from those you trust the most. <laughs> 